how do you make a museum out of a former you know pr prison that doesn't have an archive the documents were destroyed similarly South Africa's archive, the country's archive, is largely missing because between the periods of 1990 and 1996, the apartheid government was getting rid of, of documentation, shredding documentation by the tons, right? So when you have those kind of gaps, like we had at Constitution Hill, we had to rely on memory. We had to bring in the former prisoners, you know, who, who were there, who served time in the prison to be able to tell us what happened right and a lot of people will say that is not factual how can you trust the memory of a person when you know that memory is fallible for me it's not about trust or believing it's about listening and it's also about empowering victims to be able to tell things from their perspective welcome to creativity pioneers a podcast by the moleskin foundation here we engage in conversations with unique creative minds to explore and expand our understanding of creativity and its transformative power. This season is a collection of live talks that were recorded during the first European lockdown. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskin Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. Enjoy the conversation. Luando is is really um, in a unique position in South Africa. First of all, she's connected from Johannesburg. Um, Luando is a lawyer, is a constitutional lawyer, uh, is uh, also an author, a storyteller, and I think ultimately um, an activist, a cultural activist. Um, you are you've been working a lot hands in hands with. Uh, uh, the South African Constitutional Court and all the various arms that are connected to it, Constitution Hill Trust, Constitution Hill, you're part of the board, the organization, and like, and, and in, within that, that space, you're also building uh, a museum. The idea today was to, to start this conversation around three main words. Uh, and the three words are memory, sanitization, and, uh, and transition. I think one of the interesting parts you know, of, uh, of your work is really to be an, you know, an historian, but able to create you know, connection with, with, with your own perspective, with your own life and contemporaneity. Um, and uh, personally, um, Every time we, we have a moment of, uh, uh, of crisis um, uh, and or uh, somehow displacement um, as a society, I really look at South Africa uh, as a country, as a potential blueprint, not because of the many crises, but because of uh, the incredible capacity and resilience that uh, that, that, that that country um, uh, you know demonstrated throughout the years. So I always say that you know South Africa is, to me is the most interesting country in the world in the moment because something that normally happened in uh, in 100, 150 years anywhere else, there happened in 30, uh, and that compression of time. Uh, that completely uh, new uh, heterochromy that exists uh, in uh, in South Africa makes it uh, a place where a lot of um, uh, new thinking, a new language can be can be developed. 
So against my first question, when we when we share and we you know we share with you this idea of uh, um, again memory uh, sanitization and uh, and and a transition, um, what was your thought? What 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 came up to mind for you? Um. So first, uh, thanks for having me, and um, I really enjoy this format of three words. You know, when you introduced me and you used the word activist, it made me a little bit anxious because um, it, it's a label that I haven't sort of accepted because I feel like what activists do, they're the ones that pound the pavement, you know, they have the placards, they protest, they put themselves on the front lines in a way that I haven't. And maybe in the written word I have, I'm not sure, but I struggle with that label. But uh, when we spoke about the three words, I mean, it, it gave me an opportunity to think a little bit deeper, which is something I needed to do, you know, being in quarantine and all of that, like your, your life can be pretty much routine. And I think, you know, the unpacking of these three words that we've chosen just allowed me to, to also reflect on the work that I do and uh, how these words apply to the work that I do. So, um, for instance, should we start with memory? <laughs> so when we spoke about memory, I think the first thing that came to mind is the fallibility of my own memory, right? And knowing that I'm in a position where I have to curate content for a museum, and what that presents is an understanding of what memory is versus what history is, right? And the sense that I consider my own memory fallible, but I don't see history in the same way. So a lot of people distinguish the two, right? People will say that there's a difference between an experience and between memory. So you have an experience and your memory tells you a story about that experience. So it's two different things, right? And then with history, history is a narrative that's written by historians, right? And uh, what's interesting about that is that people don't see history as fallible in the same way they see memory as fallible. People see history as painting some kind of reality, as factual, whereas memory is seen as, you know, hazy, and it creates an atmosphere and it doesn't deal with the facts, right? And I think in building a museum that relies a lot on memory, you then have to ask yourself, you know, how are you gonna, what kind of status are you gonna give memory versus um, an established history, right? So the museum that we're building is about the making of the South African constitution, right? And a lot of what happened, I mean, the, the history of the Constitution is, is quite long. But, and we're dealing with the deep history of the Constitution, but with a particular focus of the 1990s. So from 1990, the banning of uh, the liberation movement and the release of political prisoners and Nelson Mandela to 1996, you know, when, um, when we, we signed our Constitution into law. There's a lot in that period that people have forgotten, right? Which is quite something because you would think that it didn't happen too long ago. So then you have to ask yourself, why is it? Why do people forget things? You know, why, why does our memory become hazy? 
And what I discovered, I guess you can, you can tell me if this is your experience, is that our minds are orientated to dealing with the immediate, right? And whatever is not immediate and whatever doesn't require immediate action is sort of forgotten. And we're always dealing with a vanishing presence all the time, right? So what I said five minutes ago has already vanished. People on, on the, you know, on this platform with us have probably forgotten the first five minutes of the conversation and they can no longer perceive it because it's no longer relevant, which means that things become hazy and then we use history to sort of eradicate, you know, um, the haziness of our past. But, you know, in, in thinking about the two terms, I've, I've realized that history cannot survive without memory. It's the fact that people remember that they have an interest in, in, in building or establishing a history, right? And there's a historian who says, I don't like this idea of memory because memory is to remember, but the point is not to remember, it's to know. And because I think one of the reasons why we choose this word originally is because we were trying to also investigate this idea of memory in these contemporary times, you know, in this situation where, um, you know, we were, you know, it is something which you can think about it. Okay, how are we going to think about this moment that we are, uh, that we are living now, you know, and, and how our memory will, will actually remember this moment um, yeah. is then connected to the other words that we can explore later. But, uh, but I think, I guess one of the questions is now, like in South Africa, you, you, are, you are dealing with a situation where it's a, everything is a very recent history. Uh, and uh, you have, you know, basically two generations that were, you know, in between two completely different worlds. It was a before and after 1994 um, to make it, you know, just uh, a little bit sim simplistic, you know, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, there is a continuation of uh, a continuum of, uh, of that history. Because even if symbolically there's been, there's been a change, even if factually there's been a change, there is also like an element of continuum between the past and the present. So, Always. yeah. And, and so um, I guess, you know, um, I feel that this is something that we're going to deal with it. Uh, also, like uh, regarding this pandemic, uh, you know, in various parts of the world that experienced a different makeup of, uh, of history. So, I guess I'm, one of my question is, is connected to this idea of uh, how do you recognize this in, in building a museum, um, you know, that is, that is there to creating, as you said, to a certain point, history, but then history is also connected to a notion of power uh, and is, con is it connected to a notion of uh, selection. There's, yeah. uh, there's something that I remember we discussed it and uh, when we were starting investigating this, uh, this term, you know, it came up like uh, a text of, uh, of Borges uh, yeah. about uh, Funes de Memorias, Funes de Memorias. Yeah. And it was this character in this, in this short story that basically after like a fall uh, of a horse, um, he could remember everything, everything in detail. And basically the result that he was somehow, so, you know, somebody was completely, he was so into reality, they was detached from it. And he couldn't develop any sense or form of empathy. Uh, 
any sense of form of abstraction, that it was so important yeah. to form ideas. So, so in a way, how do you strike that balance? Uh, how do you how do you approach this the moment that uh, you're dealing in in creating a museum in such a vivid and recent history? I, I think you know what's helped me is working within a diverse and inclusive team, in the sense that my priority is memory more than history, because memory is victim driven, right? Um, it allows people who are powerless. You you spoke about the power of historians. It allows people who don't have the pen to be able to, to share their stories and to validate their own experiences, but it's often left out of the accepted narrative, which is history, right? So I am very partial to, to prioritizing memory and oral history more than an established history of South Africa, because as you know, through our work and conversation is that a lot of who I am is not represented in the official history of South Africa, right? So for instance, even when you think of the constitution, people don't think of our constitution as having African roots. They think of it as some Western ideal, which was transplanted into South Africa, and maybe some people believe that it doesn't even work, right? And then you have someone like Tembega Nugaitobi, who you met, who's a historian, which goes to the power of who holds the pen. He's a black man, right, who comes from the, the rural Eastern Cape, who was able to move up the ranks of the legal profession and attain some kind of legitimacy that allowed him to fill in a missing gap in our historical narrative, right? So by expanding the idea of who's, an, who's a historian, we've been able to add to our narrative because he was able to trace the, the deep African roots of the South African constitution to, uh, I think it was about five men, five black men that he profiled in his book who were already thinking about constitutionalism in 1906, right? I went through my entire schooling life not knowing that. I didn't know that there were black lawyers in the early, early 1900s who were already thinking of constitutionalism as an antidote to oppression and colonialism, right? And they were already like writing down the themes that form part of our constitution today. For me, that was quite validating, right? And it made me wonder, why was it missing from our history? And then the other thing that you have is you know, we met at Constitution Hill. Constitution Hill is a former prison, which has now been transformed into the home of our highest court, the Constitutional Court. And the prison itself did not have an archive, right? And um, what was interesting about that is that how do you make a museum out of a former, you know, pr prison that doesn't have an archive? The documents were destroyed. Similarly, South Africa's archive, the country's archive, is largely missing because between the periods of 1990 and 1996, the apartheid government was getting rid of, of documentation, shredding documentation by the tens, right? So when you have those kind of gaps, like we had at Constitution Hill, we had to rely on memory. We had to bring in the former prisoners, you know, who, who were there, who served time in the prison, to be able to tell us what happened, right? And a lot of people will say that is not factual. How can you trust the memory of a person when you know that memory is fallible? For me, it's not about trust or believing. 
It's about listening. And it's also about empowering victims to be able to tell things from their perspective. So uh, you've met Lauren, my colleague that I'm working with on the museum. She was in charge of a process which she called mapping memory. Mapping memory allowed those prisoners that wanted to, women and male prisoners, black and white, to come onto the site and to literally have, to create a physical manifestation of their memory, right? To make their memories material using art, you know, talking about creativity, you know, through the drawing of the lines back and forth, right? Some of them were drawing what the prison used to look like. That conjured up memories that they had forgotten. You know, another prisoner took something material. They took a blanket and they created a skirt. This is a skirt that this male prisoner had to wear, you know, as, as he was forced to be the boss's wife, which alluded to his sexual oppression in the prison. And I think for a lot of them, it, it, it was traumatic, but also unexpected because they didn't think that their memories would be valued to a point that they would form the predominant narrative of a historical site, you know, one of the most important historical sites in the world. So for me, seeing that validation of my people's memory is the reason why I champion memory over an established history that I don't even trust anyway, unless we open up the idea of who's a historian. I like this idea of um, memory as, as a process and, and how like the listening aspect of it becomes central, even more than any research of truth uh, or objective truth, uh, you know. But um, I think we should, because um, we're going to come back to this, but I think we could yeah. talk to the other words, because the other words that came out, I, I was very fascinated by it, by the way that you were thinking about approaching it. And uh, when we talk about uh, sanitization, and of course we were thinking about sanitization because this is something that we keep hearing in these days. You know, it's about uh, using hand sanitizer, washing your hand, uh, making wearing a mask, uh, making sure to uh, somehow live in a um, germless society. Uh, there is something that when we that when we spoke about that that word, something came to mind, and I think it was a story that. Um, that your former boss uh, used to tell you, uh, Judge Cameron. Yeah. Can, can you tell us yeah. something? So when we came up with that word, as you said, it was very much linked to this idea of living in this pandemic mm -hmm. and um, the form of prevention in this pandemic is sanitization and and sanitizing your hands, your home, everything. Funny enough, this morning I heard a funny story on the radio of this woman who had just received a delivery of groceries, right? And because she didn't trust that they were clean, she wanted to make her own cleaning solution to sanitize her groceries. Mm -hmm. She mixed ammonia and, and vinegar and other chemicals. She almost killed herself in the process of trying to sanitize her groceries and her home. Mm -hmm. So I kind of found it, you know, um, that's the extreme. Like we're living life to that kind of extreme now that people are going to such lengths to make sure that they're clean and their homes are clean. And that's more on the physical level of sanitization and, and feeling as if that no matter what I do, you know, I'm never going to be 100% like germ free. There's always some kind of vulnerability, no matter, you know, what kind of a fortress I put up in my home. This, this virus that we're dealing with is so, um, 
it's so porous that I feel like it's just going to go through whatever, you know, surface that I put up. So anyway, but that idea led me to another more symbolic idea of sanitization, and that is uh, moral purity, which I think is a topic that you and I talk about quite a lot, like when you talk about, you know, um, sports figures and that kind of thing. And um, the former boss that you're talking about is Edwin Cameron, who's a judge or a former judge. He retired last year. One of the smartest men that I know. Um, he's HIV positive. He is white and he's Afrikaans, Afrikaans and English, and um, rose up the ranks to be, you know, one of the judges of our highest court. And I say that because I feel like when you mention Edwin Cameron's name, you have to know what that comes with. That identity is so complex. And I feel like there's no way in the world that he would have been able to be a judge of, you know, the country's highest court other than in South Africa, right? Anyway, he's one of my favorite writers, and he, he wrote something special about Bram Fischer. Bram Fischer was one of Nelson Mandela's lawyers. He was uh, a lawyer for the liberation movement. He's very acclaimed, very esteemed in South Africa. There's a road named after him. He's also Afrikaans, but he's not just Afrikaans. And for those who don't know, who are dialing in from other parts of the world, you know, Afrikaners are often seen as the former oppressors in South Africa, right? And um, he comes from a family of Afrikaans aristocrats, right? And um, he had such dimensions to his, to his, um, Sorry. Sorry. Am I back? I'm so sorry. That works. Well, while we were talking, he had such dimensions to his um, identity that Cameron wanted to explore all of those because what is usually forgotten about Bram Fischer, talking about memory, right? We've sanitized the memory of Bram Fischer by reducing him just to Nelson Mandela's lawyer or the lawyer of the movement, not knowing that he comes from a very Africana family, very prominent Africana family. He, is, he was a communist, right? Meaning that he wanted to take down the government as we knew it under apartheid, right? He wanted to take down the capitalist system, not knowing that Bram Fischer was an advocate. In South Africa, we have a split bar. We have lawyers and we have advocates, right? And he was on retainer, you know, with Anglo-American, a mining company. So he represents corporate, he's a communist, and he had to take an oath of office as an advocate to uphold the laws of the land, yet he's breaking them through his work with, um, you know, the liberation movements, right? And then another interesting thing about Bram Fischer that we forget is that he accepted the Rhodes Scholarship 30 years after Cecil John Rhodes died, right? Social John Rhodes is British, you know, and, and Brown Fisher is Afrikaans. This was also about 30 years after the end of the Anglo-Boer War. The formation of this country started after the British and the Afrikaners were fighting over South Africa, right? And the British defeated the Afrikaners. Mm-hmm. And then you have this Afrikaner aristocrat 30 years later embracing the name of Cecil John Rhodes and accepting the scholarship, right? So, you know, Cameron said to me that Bram Fischer is a very complicated person when we think about moral purity. 
because when he got arrested because of his work in communism and, and helping the liberation movement, he got arrested, he appeared in court for his bail hearing, and he, he promised the magistrate that give me bail, I'm not going to escape, you can, I'm giving you my word. He gave the magistrate his word. What did he do? He broke his word and he went underground and he disappeared after he got bail, right? Mm. And the interesting thing that Cameron said to me is that Rwanda, we are all, all of us are soiled by moral compromise, right? We are so caught up in, in, in some kind of example of moral purity, which is so unattainable that, you know, um, it distracts us from the work that we can do even though we are complicated and we are soiled and we are dirty in so many ways that don't let those other things that Bronfischer did, you know, um, distract you from the fact that he was fighting under imperfect conditions and he was imperfect himself. But at the end of the day, he contributed to the best of his ability for the struggle, you know, of a free South Africa. Right. And, and, and for me, when I think of moral purity, I think of, what Justice Cameron was trying to teach me through Bromfish's life, because we live in a culture that actually champions moral purity. You just have to go online. A completely credible person who's really contributing to society can be taken down by putting their foot wrong mm -hmm. in any slightest way. And we've seen it a number of times through our cancel culture. We demand out of people to be sanitized, to be morally pure, and there's no room for error. So, I mean, those are some of the ideas that um, came to mind mm -hmm. when we spoke about that word. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, there's also something that, um, that you were mentioning. And when you go back home to your home, uh -oh. the countryside, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, and this idea of, though, there is an element also of sanitization that is connected to a form of respect and protection uh, that is, goes beyond the very scientific form and is embraced culturally within a, in a different, with a different spin. Yeah, I thought about this because when I go to the store to get my groceries, you know, before I walk in, a security guard comes up to me. I have to put out my hands and he sprays sanitizer and I sort of like, you know, do my thing and walk in. That moment for me, is so special. It is so special. And he probably, the security guard doesn't get it because for me, it's such a form of care that we show one another, even though he's probably performing that out of duty. It reminds me of, you know, back home when someone is washing your hands or washing your feet. And for I think me, you that, explain what back home is. It would be like the, the rural Eastern Cape or even where my family is. So some of my family is not in Johannesburg. They in a, they're at a co coastal town in, in the Eastern Cape called Port Elizabeth. And that's where my grandparents are buried. Mm -hmm. And when I go visit their graveyards, right, when I come back home, I'm not allowed to walk in through the gate without washing my hands first. And, and the sense of care that, that makes me so nostalgic for home is that my aunt will put out a basin with water and soap by the gate waiting for me right, to make sure that I know that before I walk into the house, I have to wash my hands. And for me, I can't explain why that touches me so much to a point where I connected with a security guard 
who's offering me hand sanitizer and it's become a ritual. Mm -hmm. So even though we're in this pandemic, I've sort of ritualized this thing that is, you know, a, a scientific thing. It's a health concern. It's, it's a prevention thing. For me, it goes beyond that. It's such a human connection without two people talking. And because it reminds me of back home and the fact that when you come back from the graveyard or you come back from burying someone, when you come back from a funeral, you can't just walk into a house. You have to wash your hands first. And I think symbolically, I may be wrong. Other people may want to chime in. It's just to say you're leaving that behind. You're cleansing yourself before you walk into the house. We don't want you to bring, you know, the darkness of the graveyard into the home. So you have to wash your hands. There's a, there's, there's this, you know, this idea of, of moving forward, um, I think is very much connected to, to the next word, the last word. Um, and it probably is the most loaded of the three. Um, this idea of, of transition. And uh, an ideal transition is, is pretty simple, is, is how to move from one status to another one and enter into another, to another status. Um, but in, I think this word becomes, you know, um, the connotation of the word is extremely different when you pronounce it in a South African context. Um, because of, you know, how recent and, and loaded and, and heavy and with, uh, and full of emotion. I mean, that, you know, that, that word carries so much also controversy, you know, in the moment. There's so much need of reconciliation. Right? So, um, I would like, you know, you to, to tell us a little bit about this in, in, in this idea of, of transition within a South African context and then how this, you think, can, can apply to the moment that we're living in of moving to a, to, to transit to a, to a new status. Yeah, and before I get there, I want to say that, you know, as I said in the beginning, all three words are sort of important for this uh, museum-making process. You know, creating a museum in South Africa in 2020 is quite different from, you know, 20 years ago. And the fact that I'm on the team tells you how different it is, right? And um, the idea of sanitization also leads to the fact that because South African history can be seen as so triumphant, there's, there's this, um, you know, there's this danger of wanting to whitewash history and to sanitize figures in history like Bram Fischer, like Nelson Mandela. I struggle with that when it comes to Nelson Mandela because he's my hero. And I just want to see him in a certain kind of light. And museum making is forcing me to accept the complexity and the grayness of all of this, right? And then when you move the word... Can you explain yeah? this? Because I think that a lot of people that are not from South Africa are not very familiar with South African history. They're not even... Uh, they're not necessarily familiar with this idea of the complexity of the figure of Mandela and, and how Mandela, the symbol of Mandela, then can be uh, taken in different ways within the country. I mean, you know, Nelson Mandela, everyone knows him, is one of the most important figures of the 20th century. He was our first president, legitimate president, and he's been sanitized in a way that he's been co-opted into this grandfatherly figure. This all-embracing, very, you know, amenable, amicable sort of character, right? And when you look at his life, it, it, it's, that's just one side to him. This is a man who started, you know, Umkonto with the armed struggle, the armed wing of the ANC. He was a soldier, 
right? Mm-hmm. And, and he had a very complicated personal life. You know, this is a person who put country beyond, before family. And a lot of people have judgment when it comes to that. This is a person that people know sort of like he mistreated his first wife when he was much younger, right? This is a person that people today deem a sellout. That I don't subscribe to. You can criticize a person, but a sellout, factually, Mandela is not. And I'm able, I, I, would, I, would, I would stake it's myself. Yeah. yeah. So I think the worldview of Nelson Mandela, people do themselves a disservice by concentrating on the latter part of his life, right, as this grandfatherly figure. He's got about six characters in him, right? For each decade of, of, his, of his years and the struggle, he was a different person, and I don't think a lot of people go back to that. And I think the other thing is calling him a sellout betrays South African history because it lets me know you do not understand South African history or you have forgotten, right? Because people look at him through a lens of presentism. We're looking at him at this moment, knowing what we know, having had the benefit of the last 25 years and judging him through that lens. That's unfair. You can't do that. You have to take yourself to 1990, realize how the world had changed, realize the challenges that he was facing and why he made the choices that he made, right? So for me, I have to caution myself in telling South African history not to lionize him in a way that deprives, deprives him of his complexities because I think there is that beauty. You know, we can, we can mine so much greatness from his multifaceted, faceted identity, right, rather than concentrating on one thing. Similarly with South Africa as well, you can tell yourself a simple story of a peaceful transition of a rainbow nation and everyone lived happily ever after, right? And that's not it. A lot of people lost track of the South African story because after our transition, they're like, South Africa is good. You know, the world was uh, rooting for us. They saw Nelson Mandela and Sarah Raposa hold up the constitution. That country is going to be fine. Let's go focus on something else. Well, I can tell you we're not fine, right? Uh, I think we still carry a lot of unfinished business. And that fin- unfinished business takes us to the word of transition and what it means. Because we're going to have to transition from a pandemic to our new reality. And if we don't do that correctly, you know, and, and you can, you know, I think people in Italy can also weigh in on this in the sense of my reading of the news in terms of what's happening in Italy is highly traumatic. Mm-hmm. That you don't go from losing 700 people a day, you know, seeing coffins being carried on, on military vans, and then go to work once the country is reopened like nothing happened, right? There needs to be some kind of transitional plan that allows people to move through that time in a way that is um, constructive and, and, and takes into account people's uh, well-being. And w- when I think of tr- transition, three words come up. It's truth, it's justice, and reparations, right? And that was captured by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We did not have a Nuremberg trial situation where people were put on trial and, 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 and hung to death or given the death penalty. We didn't have that. We had something in between, right? And the reason why we couldn't have a legal judicial process, right, a courtroom process, goes back to something we spoke about earlier, that South Africa's archive is largely missing. 
If you're going to demand a legal process, if you want to claim that an apartheid police officer killed your relative, the law requires that you prove that beyond reasonable doubt. That is a very high standard. And for that kind of standard, you need evidence, right? And as I've said, a lot of evidence was destroyed. So what do you have? You have the TRC, which is a voluntary process of come tell us what you did. Come tell me what you did to my relative who was disappeared, you know, in the 1980s or 70s. Tell me what you did to them. Where are they buried? Because I need to have closure, right? And maybe if you tell me the truth and if you are contrite, maybe you will get amnesty. You know, the, the biggest misconception in South Africa is that everyone got amnesty. There were over 5,000 applications for amnesty. Roughly about 800 people got amnesty. So it's not a lot. Though a lot of people were supposed to be prosecuted but weren't. And when we talk about rushing through transition and how you pay for that later on is that South Africa's TRC was for two years. You can't deal with 300 years of oppression in two years. And not only that, its mandate was from 1960 to 1994. You had to look at apartheid and the oppression that occurred between 1960 when we became a republic and 1994 when we became a democracy, right? That is a short period of time. Apartheid itself officially started in 1948. So you can already see that that's an error, right? It, it goes to the legitimacy of the TRC process. And not everyone got to participate in the TRC. Not everyone was deemed a victim. About 21,000 people testified, right? And when you think of the scale of apartheid, it can't be that 21,000 people represent who a victim is in South Africa. The other thing was that hearings started too early. The TRC started in 1996. A lot of people at that time were still in conflict. A lot of people were still displaced. So there's an active conflict happening and you want to start the transition because you want to rush to the governing part, right? You almost want to wrap this up and then get to governing, which I'm sympathetic to, right? And then the other issue about the shortcomings of the TRC, and Tepo Mandlingo, who works for Kulumani Support Group, he wrote an amazing paper on this, if people want to read it, is the issue of language. People's sort of truth had to be interpreted by other people, right? And you know what happens with language and interpretation, especially in a semi-legal uh, forum like that, is some of the legal words that had to be used, even in the TRC, didn't have words in African languages. And people were unable to translate that back sufficiently to people. And some people's trauma was not you know, adequately translated by the interpreters in that forum. So you have a lot that's lost because of that language gap, right? So the lessons that I've learned is that, oh, the other big thing, the other big thing about the TRC is that the white leaders of apartheid did not appear. They did not take the opportunity to say, I am sorry, this is what I did, right? The only person that did that sufficiently in my mind is Leon Vessels. And you know Leon Vessels because he's one of our trustees and he participated in Wiki Africa. And Leon, he offered an unconditional apology. Someone like de Klerk appeared in front of the TRC and was not sufficiently contrite right, and was trying to defend his position, right, and that comes back years later to haunt us, because just two months ago, de Klerk is saying that 
apartheid was not a crime against humanity. His quibbling on the degrees of the oppression that black people suffered in this country, right? Semantics of definitions. It was a crime against humanity. And that needs to be a collective truth. It needs to be a collective memory, right? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about justice, as I said, a lot of people were not prosecuted. And when we talk about reparations, the reparations that were ordered by the TRC were not sufficient, which meant that people feel like there was an injury and it was not made right. Mm -hmm. Things like our constitution and policies and that kind of, those are not reparative. Those are not backward looking. Those are forward looking to make sure that we build a country that is just and equal. So you need affirmative action, you need socioeconomic rights and all those things, but reparations is for the injury that was dealt to me that many years ago and for that you need to pay for, right? So because of the incompleteness of this TRC process, you have a very vulnerable South Africa in terms of repeating the mistakes of the past, of people like de Klaak making those kind of assertions that are simply not true, right? Because they, 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 they because they were not sanctioned for that. And maybe if they were prosecuted for that, they would be saying something different. But what I like about living in 2020 is that we have this thing called social media. As soon as de Klerk said that, social media jumped on him, right? And for me, that's a form of accountability. In a way, social media is continuing the work that was not completed by the TRC and holding people accountable to a point where he had to retract his statement unconditionally. At the same time, I think it, it's interesting yeah. what you were uh, putting the accent to about creating a collective memory and, uh, and having a, a clear moment of transition from a point to another. There is, there is a passage, there is a part of transformation and that is, that, that is intrinsically, um, you know, that has to be somehow uh, connected to this idea of uh, of truth and or you know creating of a of a collective truth um, yeah. and somehow uh, reconciliation. Now the question is, how do you reconcile? And I think what's the, the interesting thing um, is to um, how to move away from uh, from this uh, from this idea of uh, uh, you know punishment per se, but like with a, with an idea of of looking forward, of moving forward, of this greater good, you know, even if that is connected to a lot of uh, uh, pain. And this idea of justice, uh, you know, then it becomes tricky. It becomes a tricky, uh, a tricky question about what is justice, you know, in that in that specific moment, and how you live with all the contradiction that uh, that this process created. But at the same time, I'm interesting, and I think it's interesting the idea that again. Going back to your idea of memory, um, the process counts. Yeah. Going through something counts. And not passing, for example, as you said now, from just one status to another one without you know, being able to somehow contemplate, to think it through, to have some sort of uh, form of, uh, of recollection. It's... Uh, uh, you know, it's important to do that. It's important to, I remember, and the idea of, I think, and then, you know, about a question, but then I, then I would try to get also some other question from, from, from the audience, yeah. from everybody, is to say, what is the role of uh, cultural institution in all this? 
you know, and, and this, and this like memory collectors, uh, somehow, you know, what is the role and, and what do you think, you know, they should do in order to, to facilitate this process, if something? Uh, before I get to that, like, um, someone said that, you know, after this pandemic, every year for a week, the world should uh, go into quarantine, right? And a lot of people were not happy about that. They're like, we don't want to remember this. And it goes back to another definition of memory as a reenactment, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like how Jewish people will have Passover dinner. It's a reenactment of, you know, something historical. And it's amazing that we're already thinking of reenactment in terms of doing quarantine symbolically as a way to remember this time so that we don't forget what it was like. And uh, what was interesting, people said, we don't want to remember this and we don't want to, to quarantine for a week, right? And I, I found it very, um, I think the idea doesn't have to be extreme as quarantining, but I hope you all realize that there is some kind of work that needs to be done in the sense of memory as well. So, or a memorial, memorial goes to truth. When you think of transitional justice, we have a lot of monuments and museums and things like that to commemorate what has happened. And, and when I think of Italy and other parts of the world, including South Africa, is that you almost need a memorial after this before you go into normal life, normal life. You need some kind of public conversation. And I think what uh, cultural, um, institutions should do is have those public conversations is offer some kind of catharsis you know public catharsis for people to share their memories and to share you know their experiences and um, not take for granted that this moment urgently requires us to go to our economic lives and 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 not to pause before going into that and I think the way that companies like the Moleskin Foundation, or even Moleskin, the way that you go back to work at day one needs to be informed by all of that, right? How do you do it in a way that honors the last couple of months? And um, you're not even just doing it for the public. You're doing it for the people that work in your institutions, that they feel supported. And, you know, if I had to look at our TRC, I wish the thing that we had been serious about is some kind of long-term sustained therapy for black people, right? And I think if, if institutions can even do that, of providing some kind of outlet or some kind of mechanism for, for people to be able to work through their feelings and, and their trauma, because this trauma is not just dying off with my parents' generation or the generation before that. It's, it's, uh, it's being passed down. And I think, you know, one last point is that whoever leads an institution, Leaders need to know history. I think for me, that is one, if, if we look at leadership and the tools of le- leadership, one of the tools that leaders need to have is history and some kind of memory, because I think those things can, can contribute to the empathy that that leader has, to the circumstances not only of their organization, but of the country. So for me, I would say that, you know, leadership has to be done differently going forward right with an empathetic tone that understands where a people or a country comes from so you're able to make the right decisions thank you so much and thanks everybody who uh, who, who listened who, who joined in this conversation we're going to have another one next week um with um with really another incredible 
incredible mind. Um, his name is uh, Roberto Cagatti. He's one of the um, top cognitive philosophers uh, we have in Europe, actually beyond. Uh, and we're going to explore three new words. And um, thanks again. And uh, I'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.